Welcome to the Talking Shop Podcast, where I'm here to share stories, lessons, and experiences in sports performance and professional development. I'm joined today by Dr. Robert Sossman, the Director of Applied Performance for Mizzou Women's Basketball. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Matt. How are you? Good, good. Always a good day when I can record a podcast. So a little bit of background about how Dr. Sossman and I know each other. In my recent job efforts and networking efforts, I got John Waggles, Dr. John Waggles' contact information from the USC sports scientist. He was nice enough to give me his email. I had an awesome phone call with Dr. John Waggle. He was nice enough to give me Dr. Sossman's email. I reached out to Dr. Sossman. He was nice enough to give me some of his time. We've had, I believe, two phone calls since then. And then Dr. Sossman expressed some interest in my podcast. And I said, I'd love to have you on as a guest. And here we are now. So for those who are not familiar, could you please share a little, little bit about your background? Yeah, certainly. Thanks for having me on, first and foremost. Uh, it's, it's an honor, and I've enjoyed our previous conversation, so I'm looking forward to today's conversation as well. But just to give a little bit of background on myself, as you said, I'm the Director of Applied Performance here at Mizzou Athletics, specifically working with women's basketball. I came here after spending three years at East Tennessee State University, where I was working on my Ph.D., and during that time, I worked with our women's soccer program, uh, in addition to uh, being an assistant coach for Dr. Brad DeWeese at the U.S. Olympic training site uh, in Johnson City. Prior to that, I spent a season with the Jacksonville Jaguars as a seasonal strength conditioning associate. And then prior to that experience, I was actually a, a sport coach at the University of Memphis. During that time, I, had, I spent five seasons working with our men's soccer team at the University of Memphis. So that's kind of my, my coaching journey. It's spanned sport coaching and has transitioned into, into the performance side, but it's been a wonderful journey so far, and I'm excited about what the future holds here at Mizzou. And you also played soccer at Memphis as well. So it was soccer at Memphis, coaching at Memphis, the Jacksonville Jaguars, Eastern Tennessee, and then Mizzou. Correct. So awesome journey. And along with your dissertation, you have – five or six other publications as well, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken. So yes. also a, a published author, uh, a lot of load monitoring and, and stuff kind of along those that realm, um, which we share a common interest in. But you also have an undergrad in finance and a master's of business administration. Could you kind of chat a little, little bit about that and kind of how that came to be, but then your transition into performance? Yeah, definitely. So it's uh it's a winding road that, that led me here. And, you know, as many athletes do, you know, when you finish playing, you know, you're trying to figure out what you want to do with your life. And, you know, when I got to college, it was all roads lead to the MLS and professional soccer. And I didn't want to consider anything else, but you mature during your time in college. And during that time, I realized that, you know, that wasn't the path that I wanted to pursue, even if the opportunity presented itself. So, you know, it kind of left me shrugging my shoulders with what do I want to do? And, I did my undergrad in finance, as you mentioned, because in my mind, there's always a need for somebody to help manage money. And, you know, people that have a lot of it may not have the time required to invest in managing their money or their assets. So I thought that you know, that could be a fruitful profession. So it was, it was really interesting going down that path. And, you know, I really enjoyed my education. But come the end of my undergraduate career, you know, I went and interviewed for a financial planning firm. and. 10 minutes into the interview, I quickly realized this is not for me. Sitting in an office, wearing a suit and tie, just it didn't feel right. And I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I knew that that wasn't it. So then just following my gut and my passion, uh, I knew I loved sport and 
you know, I really enjoyed the training side of it, the preparation as an athlete. So not knowing what I wanted to do, I enrolled in a master's program uh, at the University of Memphis. And actually a colleague of mine and I tried to pioneer a MSMBA sport management uh, MBA degree at Memphis and were unable to do so. So we ended up having to get the degree separately. So I actually have a master's in sport and leisure commerce, as well as a master's in business administration. And during that time, I was lucky enough to intern with our strength and conditioning program at the University of Memphis with the football team um, while I was working on my master's degree. And then that led to an opportunity to join the men's soccer coaching staff at the University of Memphis. So you know, I really didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. And I just kind of followed my passion and my interests. And that led into an internship with the football team. And then that in, that led into an opportunity to join the coaching staff uh, with the men's soccer team at the University of Memphis. It's crazy how you have to pick a, a major when you're so young and then anything can happen in between those four years and, and even beyond. But also real quick, you know, Coach Lee Taylor Walker yes, from I do. Memphis. And I became pretty good friends with him and Coach Christopher Williams. Mm-hmm. the coaching staff of TCU women's tennis. I worked with them and also just became good friends. They've been on the podcast as well. If you, if yeah, you know that. I was going to say, I just saw that they had been on recently. So I know Lee is going to be a tough act to follow. So I'll do my best. Super, super small world. And, and that's where kind of just in my recent networking efforts and job search and all that, you really don't know who people know and you just got to be friendly and just be open. And it was just crazy small world. So I just want to put it, put it out there really quick. When, when I heard that or when I brought up the name, it's just really cool realization. But last thing kind of about your background, did you go right from your master's to your PhD or was there some time in, in between? No, there was some time in between. And you know, to be honest, I'm very glad that I had that time in between because when I finished my master's, I said, you know what, that's it. I, I was only planning to get one master's degree and then I kind of fumbled my way into two. And I was like, I'm done when I turned in that last uh, strategic analysis paper said you know what this is it for me but it's funny where where your road takes you and I had I was aware of ETSU and you know I obviously the people that were there behind the program Dr. Mike Stone and Meg Stone Dr. Brad DeWeese Dr. Kimi Sato Dr. Satoshi Mizuguchi just an all-star cast of you know biomechanists high performance coaches sport physiologists etc and you know it was not really something that I set out knowing that I wanted to get my PhD, but, you know, as I kind of chased rabbits, which we've talked about and, you know, wanted to learn more and become a better coach, it drove me in that direction. And, you know, it's interesting kind of tying it back to, you know, we were talking about coach Walker. Uh, You know, I remember some really interesting conversations that we had while I was at Memphis and he was talking about some of the work that he had done with USA tennis. And, you know, he wanted to learn more about how can I do better for my athletes we talked about heart rate monitoring and, you know, that really aligned with some of my curiosities and how can we do more as sport coaches to help facilitate physical development. And then, you know, through my time with the Jaguars, once I made that transition from the sport coaching side to the athletic performance side, you know, I was just chasing rabbits. I wanted to learn as much as I could. And I always felt like I was behind the eight ball because I was a sport coach. And now I was trying to get into a world that I wasn't as familiar with, wasn't as knowledgeable in. So yeah, to this day, you know, I always feel like I'm, I'm chasing and playing catch up with, you know, some of the likes of, 
you know, Dr. John Waggle, who was, you know, a good friend and uh, also a, a brilliant coach and phenomenal practitioner. But, you know, that kind of drove me to, to ETSU because I spent time with the Jaguars. And what I learned from that experience working with those high level athletes is like, you can't guess. I mean, there's always a degree of uncertainty with everything that we do and individualized response and numerous other considerations. But in order to do what's right by the athletes, which is why we all get into coaching, is because we want to help provide those athletes with a better experience than we may have had. It really chased me, sent me down that road of, well, I need to make sure that if I do want to work at this level, I better make damn sure that I know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. So that pursuit of knowledge and growth for myself is what led me ultimately to the PhD as opposed to you know, making a conscious decision of, well, okay, I want to do the master's route and then go the PhD route and then see where that takes me. It was more the, the chasing the rabbits and the pursuit of knowledge to better serve my athletes that ultimately, ultimately led me to ETSU. And just the transition of the field where the PhD is kind of the new master's where the undergrad was kind of the you know baseline base entry standard and the master's was kind of like that advanced degree but now kind of the master's is that new kind of that's the standard and the phd i've, I've had this conversation with dr john waggle about any sort of director role kind of like you're in the phd is going to be the new standard and making that decision to go from you know a full-time job being a, a real adult going back to being a student and i know that you had some actual jobs while you were doing your PhD working at the Olympic training site and stuff like that. But a consideration that's not one easy to make where it's like I was doing my master's. I knew I wanted to do a master's after my undergrad, but I kind of just went after my undergrad. You know, there wasn't any consideration. It's kind of just continuing school. But when you're in the real world adulting and then going back to, to PhD, which I've never done, I might do one day. I've talked a lot, talked a lot of smack about getting a PhD, but I've eaten my words many times before in uh, in my professional career. So uh, I said I was never going to do research, and here I am now. But e- ETSU seems like seems like the place to be for for pumping out really smart minds in in sports performance, and that name keeps popping up. And something definitely to look into if the listener is is interested in something like that, and maybe myself one of these days. Who knows? But I guess last thing. So when you were a coach at the Olympic training sites. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so, and you know, what a wonderful experience getting to learn under the likes of, of Dr. Brad DeWeese and you know, getting to work with some of those elite level athletes and seeing what that process looked like and seeing what the management of training looked like was a really eye-opening experience. And, um, you know, for me, I'm very much an observer by nature. Um, you know, I like to take things in. I like to process them. I'm very analytical. Um, so for me, it was really valuable to be able to step back and watch what was happening, try and piece things together for myself, and then follow those up with questions with my colleagues, as well as, you know, going to Dr. Dr. DeWeese and, you know, making sure that I tried to understand, well, why are we doing this? Why does this fit here? So it wasn't quite as much for me about, like, why this exercise, but it was about, like, the bigger picture, the thought process behind it is, you're choosing this specific training tactic here, why, how does it fit into the larger picture? What's the progression into it? And where are we going from here? And then ultimately, like, how does that one single exercise or that prescription of training fit into the larger puzzle to ultimately get that athlete to a position where they're hopefully competing for a place on the podium in the Olympics? 
So it was just a, a phenomenal experience. Fantastic, fantastic. So you survived kind of the on-the-spot follow-up background questions. We'll get into the main ones. What is the coolest story thus far you have in your career? Basically, if you had to tell just one, what would it be? Oh, that's a, a loaded question. And I jotted some notes down just because I don't, I don't want to get off on, on any tangents here. But probably the most influential story I have, it has to be when, when I met my mentor, Tom Mislinski, uh, known as Milo. Milo is the head strength and conditioning coach for the Jaguars right now. He's been so influential in my life from getting into the field, uh, first of all, then to helping push me towards East Tennessee State. But it's, it's really funny. So, you know, I was at the University of Memphis and, you know, I was in the spring semester of my first year of the master's program. And he had just come to Memphis after spending numerous years at the Cleveland Browns as our head strength coach. And I remember day in and day out, I used to go in in the morning and I used to just torture myself in the gym as much as I possibly could. Just so much volume with so many different exercises. And, you know, I still thought more was better. So the more you could do, the better the outcome would be. And I remember one day after a couple of months, you know, he basically stepped out of the office and said, Sauce, what the hell are you training for? And I just told him, hey, I just, I love to train. I love being in here. I don't have any specific goals. From that moment, we kind of fostered a relationship where, um, you know, I think he saw somebody that loved training and was thirsty to learn. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to follow him around and observe and understand what and why. And then I was able to intern under him for a summer at the University of Memphis. And during that time, I just tried to soak up as much as I could. And I really learned the basis of training that it was more than walking in the weight room five minutes before a session and putting something up on the whiteboard. I still remember going into his office with seeing all the books on his bookshelf and seeing he had two whiteboards on the wall and he just had everything sketched out for the entire summer. So the sprint volumes, the tempo volumes, the weightlifting volume loads, all of those things and how they integrated in together and fluctuated in relation to one another. And it just kind of blew my mind like, holy cow, there's way more to this. So that was a really eye-opening experience for me. And then I wanted to learn, well, okay, what all goes into it? What are the different considerations? And that really grew my interest and passion for sport performance. And then through that time, you know, that ultimately, when I decided to shift my career path from sport coaching into athletic performance, you know, he was the first person I called. And, you know, I was very fortunate that they had an opportunity open down in Jacksonville for an unpaid internship, which was the plan. And as you mentioned earlier, you're making that decision to go from a full-time job to an unpaid position was one that was not easily made, but it all comes back to following my passion and pursuit of knowledge. And I wasn't sure how it was gonna work out, but I knew what I wanted to do and what I wanted to learn. So I chased that and you know, luckily that position in Jacksonville turned into one where I was able to get some compensation uh, which certainly made things a little bit easier. But then even during that time, always asking me questions and asking my thoughts about what we were going to do in the next training block. And it really made me think um, and made me learn and really gave me more questions. And then toward the end of that time, you know, I was looking for the next job or what am I going to do? And he had always said, you know, go and get your PhD, go and get your PhD. So that seed was always planted. And, you know, I trusted somebody that is so well experienced in the field and knows so many people that 
he was going to point me in the right direction. And the more I looked into ETSU and saw who was there and what the program was all about and some of the students that they put out in the early years, the more I saw that it was the place for me. But, you know, there was also somewhat of a leap of faith of, you know what, like Milo has never led me wrong. Nobody knows this field better than he does. And, you know, if I'm going to lean on him as a mentor, I need to be prepared to take the advice that he's going to give me and turn that into an actionable result. Because, you know, one of the things I remember not to go off on a tangent here, but, you know, I like listening to leadership podcasts. And one of the things that really resonated with me recently in a John Maxwell podcast um, was he was talking about, you know, the role of mentor and mentee and how important it is that if you're going to be a mentee, you need to act on the advice of your mentors. If they give you something to read, if they give you advice, you know, you need to read it. You need to really take time to reflect on it, have questions, act on the advice that they give you and then follow up with them. Otherwise it's worthless. So, you know, that's one of the things that I've always tried to do with the mentors that I've had is make sure that I lean on them, but then also make sure that I have the courage and I'm prepared to step into the advice that they give me and make it an action. A fantastic tangent that we will go on. I'm very excited about this one. I'm glad that you brought up mentorship and all of that. So I'll give a little brief background about my own because I talk about this a lot on my podcast. So Steve Breitenstein, he was the director of coaching when I was an intern at TC Boost, private facility back home. And he would always pose these questions to me that would just like keep me up at night. You know, we'd finish a conversation. I'd go, dang it, Steve, I'm not going to sleep tonight. You know, you suck, but it's awesome. Just awesome conversations. And mentorship can be a lot of different things. It's your own relationship with your mentor. So I guess my first follow-up question would be, was it an explicit thing? Like, did you ask him, hey, I'd like you to be my mentor? Or was it kind of just, it just formed into that with all the questions and conversations you guys had? And then the second question, if it's not too personal, what does your relationship look like? Is it like a weekly phone call? Is it just a chain of emails? Because I feel like mentorship and having a mentor can somewhat be intimidating at first. But when I was at, at TCU, I asked Steve a few weeks before I went off to Texas, and I kind of blacked out. I was so nervous. I don't know why I was nervous, but I said, hey, can you be my mentor? And I was fortunate enough to where he said yes. And we just exchanged emails every two, three weeks. And it was super fundamental to just making it through my master's and getting the most out of it. So if you could elaborate on how your mentorship came to be and what it kind of looks like now, if, if that's okay to ask about. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it definitely was not a formal conversation. It's one that just kind of evolved a life of its own. Um, and, you know, it was as much me following him around and peppering him with questions and, and not letting him get off the hook. You know, I probably pestered him more in those early years than, than he cared to. And, you know, that would be periodic phone calls, training, trading texts. And then anytime I was in the area, I'd want to drop in and, and see what they were doing. Because, you know, I always wanted to learn. And for me, one of the best means, as much as I enjoy reading and you know, listening to podcasts and, you know, watching seminars, to me, there's nothing better than going on a site visit, getting a chance to interact with somebody personally, but also seeing what they do and the constraints of their environment and trying to understand how all of those things factor into the decisions that they're making. So I would always go down to Jacksonville and see what they were doing anytime we had a break in the summer or over Christmas. Um, so it was those periodic visits and then just the periodic communication in between those visits. And now, 
you know, I'd say it's very much the same. You know, we chat on the phone, not necessarily on a regular basis. Sometimes it's more frequent than others, but you know, it's text here and there, it's phone calls. Whenever I have the opportunity, you know, I'm going to drop in and uh, try and learn from what they're doing and try to understand why and see how I might be able to apply some of those strategies and tactics within my own environment. Getting a mentor as formal or as informal as it might be, I think would definitely be worth the, the listener's time as we've both benefited a lot from it. So that was a, a very a very simple question or conversation that I had and something that kind of just formed for you, but has been super fundamental, definitely. And I like how you followed it up commenting on the podcast you listened to where if you're going to have that relationship, it's got to turn into something. Right. You know, hence, like the, the last question I'll ask is what are actionable things? And if we consume all of this content, if we have this mentoring relationship that just leads to just conversations, how is that helping either of us get better in the things we actually do in our daily life? So I'm always a big fan of tying kind of philosophical or theoretical things into actionable things. So big fan of that, definitely. Next question. What is the story most fundamental to your development slash leading you to right now? Oh God, that's a loaded question. You know, I don't know that there's any, any one story that is most influential. There's a couple that kind of piece together. And, you know, as you, as you progress, you know, having some idea of where you want to go and then, you know, you follow that path and, you know, there may be, there may be a, a why in the road and, you know, you have to decide which direction is more fitting for me now. And then you chase that path and remembering that nothing's final, but, um, you know, the first most influential story again, goes back to when I met Milo at Memphis because that showed me how much depth there was to training and everything that went into it and the various considerations and how training different modalities interacted with one another. And then that opportunity led me to Dave Tenney and the Seattle Sounders sports science seminar. And I remember having an opportunity to go to the first one. And I remember Dave talking in depth about, you know, the use of heart rate monitoring and, and GPS and not just collecting it, but understanding what it means. So it's describing performance and based on those descriptives, how can we use this information to better train our athletes and then also use it as a learning process. So not just what is an athlete doing and how can we train them for that, but asking deeper questions of, well, who are our more robust athletes? What do they do well? How can we translate those characteristics across the rest of our team to hopefully make them more robust? So really diving in and asking critical questions. And as a quick aside, going back to mentors, I mean, you have some that are closer and some that are further away. And you know, I don't talk to Dave Tenney very often, but you know, I've had an opportunity to talk to him a few times. And from a distance, I very much consider him a mentor based on, you know, the quality of work that he does, but, you know, relating my own journey to his, he started off as a soccer coach, created a high performance department with Seattle Sounders, and now he's a director of high performance with the Orlando Magic. So, you know, sometimes mentorship can just be observing from afar and not being afraid to reach out. And so to kind of bring that back, you know, that's one of the things I took away from Dave Tenney. So with Milo, I saw, you know, all of the different considerations and, you know, being able to anticipate what those interactions are going to be. And then from Dave, you know, understanding that there are actually ways that we can quantify and measure what is happening and maybe better inform those processes and those decisions that we're making. And then like, ultimately that led me to ETSU to really understand 
the depth of the physiological considerations and determinants for the training decisions that we make and understanding that there is physiological processes that may be advantageous to develop as a at a foundational level because they're ultimately going to allow us to drive further performance adaptations down the future so being able to really zoom out and see a larger picture and now how do we sequence some of these qualities together to mature one initially before that's going to allow us to further develop other qualities so you know if we develop strength endurance first and create a larger muscle that has greater force producing capacity and building tolerance to workload and then we translate that into greater strength heavier loads lower volumes that's going to drive more of a neural component so it's going to help us transmutate into a greater force producing capacity and then that's going to stage the foundation for greater power outputs so if we really want to mature and develop power how we go about that is really important from a physiological standpoint but then diving in deeper is you know what does that training plan look like and having the roadmap for where we're going to go and then once we know where we're going to go and what those physical qualities are and how to sequence them together then you dive deep into those specific training tactics that determine the exercises that you choose and how you layer those whether we're talking about in the weight room whether we're talking about conditioning or sprint training all of those things have to be considered within the context of the greater picture within the sport and within the athlete themselves so um, you know those different experiences really allowed me to dive as deep down the rabbit hole as i possibly could um, so i know that was more than one experience but all of those things were heavily influential in where i am today <laughs>and trying to to bring your answers of the coolest store and the store most fundamental it all started with you just being a, a a meathead in the in the Memphis weight room that's and exactly right you you never really know what stuff can kind of lead to i guess the story most not the most influential but what made my masters was my time with the TC beach volleyball team my classmate was the graduate assistant strength coach for the beach team we were just chatting one day and i said hey you know i i work with the baseball team right now I could probably swing two teams. If you want to bring it up to the coaches, you know, let me know. And it was just kind of some offhand comment as we were leaving the classroom and the coaches took her up on it and me up on it. And, and it ended up being extremely fundamental to my masters. But that's one of those things where it's like, you got to go out and do and be yourself, not necessarily with the intention of this is going to turn into this big grand thing, but you never know who's watching in regards to other people watching you in like milo just coming out and talking to you but also in regards to your mentorship from the seattle sounders person where you would consider them a mentor kind of just by observing them mm -hmm. so it's one of those things where you never know who's watching kind of from both ends and that a lot of awesome things can kind of just happen out of nowhere so you always got to be prepared moral of my story but it all starts with with just love and iron i guess it seems no, like that's that's a, that's a theme for everyone exactly right story you are most proud of thus far in your career i have to say my phd you know coming from somebody that you know in high school wasn't ever the greatest student and never had any dreams of getting a phd to go through that process and 
you know, as I mentioned earlier, I always just saw myself as a coach. I never, I was very intimidated by the idea of, of research and writing and going through that formal process. But some of the best things that I've ever done and that I'm most proud of is really leaning into that process and admitting that, you know, I don't know and trying to learn. And, you know, there's a lot of mistakes made throughout that process, but that's where learning takes place. And you can't be afraid to jump into something that you're uncomfortable with. And I think spending time diving into the research, learning how to write it and articulate my thoughts in a very clear way has made me a better coach and a better practitioner and vice versa. You know, the ability to get on the floor and coach and see what works, what doesn't, why it might work, why not, has not only allowed me to formulate better research questions, but I feel like look at literature and research with a little bit more critical eye. So I think they, those things support each other, but I'm certainly most proud of, you know, doing my PhD and, you know, surviving the dissertation process and everything that comes with it. Because, you know, when I first, when I first went to ETSU, I remember Dr. Stone saying on day one, you know, a PhD is not a test of intelligence. It's a test of perseverance. And those that are going to get through are those that are going to persevere and not going to be deterred when they're told something is not good. But when you get your first draft, your dissertation back, and it is just completely marked out in red, and you look at it and you say, okay, like it just got a lot better. And I think there's a lot of parallels you know, to coaching, and you have to be a bad coach before you can be a good coach. And not that you knowingly go out and make mistakes, but you can't be afraid to go out and act on what you think is best. And then be open to hearing criticisms and be open to learning better ways to go about it. And that's how we ultimately refine ourselves and our own processes to become better. I like to say embrace the suck, whether it's, yes. it's podcasting or when I first got into research, trying to publish my thesis to JSCR is just, you, you never really appreciate what goes into something like that until you actually go and do. And, and I like how he said it's, it's not intelligence, it's perseverance. So with, with the PhD, could you summarize your dissertation without going down that huge rabbit hole? Because I know any research project is a ginormous rabbit hole, but like a three or four kind of bullet point summary on what that topic was and kind of how that topic came to be. Yeah, certainly. I did my dissertation on the physical match demands of women's collegiate soccer. There was one published study that looked at what the match demands were for division one women's soccer. And that was done. It was one or two matches for a number of different teams across all of college soccer. I want to say that came from the ACC conference. So very small sample size with regard to number of games. And for me as a practitioner, wanting to look to the literature to help drive some of the decisions that I made, there was nothing there. So my decision to choose that topic really grew out of necessity for myself and our athletes, but it also recognizing that there was nothing there. You know, I wanted to provide something that others could look to for a resource and guidance for, okay, you know, for women's soccer, the division one level, what demand do I need to prepare my athletes for? So looking at total distance, high speed distance and sprint distance over the course of a college season. And we were lucky enough to have three seasons worth of data to provide as much of a robust sample as possible. And I wanted to write it in a way that didn't necessarily speak towards the researcher, but spoke to the coaches 
in a digestible way that, hey, you know, if our, if our ladies at this level are covering, you know, approximately 9,500 meters over the course of the game and we have two games in a week, well, then we know that we need to prepare them for at least X amount of distance with approximately 1,000 meters at high speeds and a little over 400 meters at sprint speeds. I mean, it's nothing novel. And you know, I joke with people that it's not sexy, but it's needed. And a lot of times within the research and within what we do, we can't get carried away by what we think is sexy. It's the doing the simple things really, really well that are going to have the greatest impact. I love how you, you brought that up at the end about how it's not sexy, but that's what you need. And I feel like that's, that's a common theme where it's super easy to, to get caught up in, let's say it's something more weight room specific, putting bands and chains on everything else. And if it's something more sports science related, where it's getting the newest technology and all of this kind of stuff, it's like, well, why don't you just do what you already have savagely well? Mm-hmm. And that's not what people want to hear, but often what they need to hear is, is often kind of the, the comments that people make after giving those recommendations. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And last thing kind of on the PhD, so similar to the comments on how it's not a test of intelligence, but it's a test of perseverance. If you had to give a thing or two that was your biggest misconception or kind of the most unexpected thing about that whole process. Yeah, I would say my biggest misconception was I thought I knew one or two things when I got there. And I quickly learned that that was not the case. You know, there's just, you know, particularly being around the likes of, you know, Doc and Meg Stone and Dr. Brad DeWeese, um, you know, you quickly learn that you know less than you thought, but you learn how much is out there. So that was probably the largest misconception that I had. But, you know, I think the other misconception is that there can't be a relationships between athletic and academics. I mean, I think a lot of places, athletics coaches are intimidated by the academics because there's a disconnect in knowledge and in the ability to communicate and speak a similar language. And, you know, there's a very unique setup at ETSU and Doc and Meg have worked tirelessly to form that relationship and that partnership where our program provides strength and conditioning and sports science services for the athletic department. And I think that that is a model that so many other institutions can look to, particularly during this time as we look to return to sport from the coronavirus, you know, we need more than ever quantifiable information to help understand where our athletes are when they arrive back on campus and how we're safely progressing them. And I think the soil is as rich as it ever can be for the integration of those two programs because they can help coaches better understand how to progress training and become better coaches. But I also think it's important, you know, one of the struggles of academics is they don't know the appropriate research questions to ask. So, you know, leaning on the coaches to say, hey, here's what I'm dealing with. How can we find better answers or solutions to these problems moving forward? Um, And, you know, I think that was a misconception that I had before I got to ETSU was, I didn't know how well those things could work together. Um, and then seeing the way it did at ETSU, not to say that there weren't any challenges, but you know, I don't think that those two are mutually exclusive. And I think a greater integration of athletics and academics, you know, as has been done at you know, some other programs across the country, 
um, you know, since I got to ETSU, I think is vital for the benefit of both the academic side and training future sports scientists and performance coaches, but also on the opposite side to really benefit the athletes in the athletic department. Yeah, speaking on that disconnect you mentioned between athletics and academics, in my own life, being able to speak that language or having just a variety of experiences that could benefit or give me the ability to speak that language in both those fronts. So if I were to sum up kind of my experiences, it would be college baseball, private strength and conditioning, and now sports science. And when I first got into sports science, I thought, oh man, I'm so late in the game. Like there's all these people that are so smart. But because I've been a college athlete and because I've been in just another role in performance, that's created not a level of credibility, but as cliche as it is, like that I get it or I can speak that language. You know, the strength coach at TCU was so much more open to having conversations with me, even though I technically was with the Department of Kinesiology. I wasn't with mm. athletics. Them just knowing that I played a sport competitively and that I, I understand what strength, strength and conditioning is, doing it for, at the time, it had been three years. This is my fourth year doing it. But everything is so esoteric. That's my big word of the day. But so specific nowadays to where if you're not in it, if your whole life doesn't revolve around it, you're kind of, kind of screwed. But I would like to argue uh, similar to, what's that book, Range, the guy who mm-hmm. wrote, uh, is that David Epstein? No, It is. Maybe. Yeah, who wrote Range, like how the generalists are going to take over. I think that that's a super underrated concept and seeking out a variety of experiences, give you that ability to not only just change your perspective and your lens, you know, because if you try to solve the same problem the same way, and you ask the same people who've been looking at the same problem with the same lens, you know, you're not going to get very far. So a variety of experiences, even if it's, you know, kind of unintentionally kind of your path just changing, there's going to be a lot more beneficial than, than one might think. And that's the end of my rant. No, and I mean, you and I have talked about that before. And I think, you know, it's a, it's a great point. And, you know, sometimes in order to be, to be better in what we're focused on, you know, we need to grow in different directions and, you know, it's just like training. We want to have, you know, a certain depth of certain talents and skills and abilities, but we also need breadth within what we do and a range of different means to display those. And, you know, along with that, I think just from a personal interest standpoint, I mean, you need other outlets to go down. And sometimes, you know, when you explore topics that may not be directly related to your profession, you know, that can actually allow you to, as you said, kind of view things through a different lens and gain perspectives. And then you're able to identify things that can relate back to your profession. So, um, you know, from both a professional development standpoint, creating some range for yourself, but also from a personal standpoint, giving yourself some other outlets, I think is really important. I'll I'll give another quick example that might help kind of just paint a picture on what that concept actually means. So this past year at TCU, my coworker was a competitive bodybuilder. And one day I just said, hey, can I work out with you? You know, because I'd recently gone down the Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting rabbit hole. So I just said, hey, can I work out? He said, sure. First exercise was three by 15. And I just stared at him and I was like, bro, I haven't gone above six reps on purpose. And I don't even know how long. And that opened up just this whole new world of just bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. And all of the misconceptions that I had about bodybuilding and bodybuilders and just doing that for basically, I don't know, six months 
has definitely shaped how I view about training now, just getting all those different experiences. And now I look at the problems I have now with a little bit different lens and how it could potentially be solved. So just one more specific example of how going and doing has benefited me coming back to, to my original interests, just to help kind of help the listener wrap, wrap their head around that. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. And you know, that brings up, you know, an example in my mind too, of, you know, I was always a real, a volume based guy. And I told you, you know, when I finished as an athlete and I first met Milo, I mean, I was just doing just as many reps of every different exercise that I could think of before going out and running like 10 miles and like just doing everything I possibly could thinking that I was, you know, doing more was the best thing to do. And I always kind of had that ingrained in my mind that the more was better. Even the more I read, you know, it was more about how much can we do, not how much do we need to do. And then in my first semester, of my PhD, I participated in one of the research studies uh, that we had going on that was looking at training to failure versus using a reps and reserve model. So, you know, the study had two groups. One group was trained to failure every day for 12 weeks. The other group was a reps and reserve. So they trained at certain intensities, but always left a little bit in the tank. And over the course of 12 weeks, you know, we would test at the beginning of each new training block to see what the performance outcomes were. And it was a really unique experience for me, not just because of the results of the study, but as somebody that had always just done as much as I could, I was beholden to only the prescribed training for that study, which was lift Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then Tuesday and Thursday, we would do two sets of six 20 meter sprints. And that was it. And we did that for 12 weeks. And come the end of the 12 weeks, like I actually, my body felt better. I felt like I had, you know, better cognitive clarity because I wasn't just exhausted all the time. And from a performance outcome standpoint, like I could see the difference between groups. And that was one of the most powerful things in my mind and really driving the question is just because we should do something or just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should do it. I think that's an important question to tease out and sometimes leaving a little bit more in the tank today so we can get more out of tomorrow is a really important concept that we need to embrace. And that goes back into the planning. You know, when you walked into Milo's office and you saw all of it up there on his whiteboard. Yeah. And just because you can, does that mean that you should? And that's that's a whole nother a whole nother discussion, but uh, a phrase that was coined on on TSP about fifty episodes ago was falling from Mount Ignorance, Mount Ignorance with grace, mm-hmm. and just like, as I said, I've, I've eaten my words many times in a professional context where it's like, oh, I'll never do research, and then look at me now, and I said, you know, I've talked a lot of smack about doing a PhD, and I'm sure I might end up doing one, and oh, I'll never bodybuild. I remember saying I'll never Olympic weightlifter. I'll never do whatever. But when you get into it, you have to just embrace the suck, fall from out in ignorance with grace and how we do have these biases, but when it's your time to kind of learn, accept that there are new things. I don't know. Fall from out in ignorance with grace. Hopefully that makes sense. I like that. So what are one to three actionable things a listener can start doing tomorrow to become better? I'd say the first thing is you don't be afraid to reach out to people. Um, and, you know, you as an example, you, you reached out to me just out of the blue and, you know, we've had some really good conversations both ways. You know, I feel like I've taken a lot from, from your experiences and hopefully I've been able to contribute to yours. And I know, you know, looking at my own experiences, 
you know, reaching out to people have led to some of the most fruitful conversations and beneficial relationships that I've had. And it's, it's not being afraid to take that step and reach out. It's not being afraid to ask what that person is doing and why. And worst case scenario is they don't respond or they say no. And then that's probably somebody you don't want to connect with anyway. So I think just having the courage and the bravery to reach out and see what happens is really important. And you know, one of my one of my best friends and closest colleagues now is somebody that I just happened to cross paths with one time when I was down visiting Milo in Jacksonville. And like we just started a conversation in the weight room there. And you know, fast forward seven years later, and he and I talk probably once a week. He's a great friend of mine. So you I mean as you've mentioned before, you never know what can happen, but you got to take that first step. Uh, and I think coming on the back end of that is you have to be able, willing and able to seek your own knowledge and your own growth. Nobody's going to spoon feed you. You know, you have to struggle. And, you know, I read a really interesting concept recently is, you know, there are two different types of simplicity. You know, there's simplicity on the near side of complex and then there's simplicity on the far side of complex. And they're two very different things because once you go through that journey of falling from the peak of Mount Ignorance, like you really learn a lot and you learn what not to do through that process. And it's very convoluted and you have a lot of questions and a lot of unknowns. But then once you get to the other side and you're really able to distill that down to its finest form and explain it in a very simple way, that's really important. But you can't get there without all the unknowns, all the fear, all the complexity in between. So I think that that's something that's really important is as you said, embrace the suck, but it's really about the journey. And sometimes we need to, we need to really embrace struggle and choose the path of most resistance instead of the path of least resistance, because, you know, it's going to be more difficult in the short run, but having perspective and, you know, keeping instant gratification at bay and just knowing and trusting that when you get to the other side of that complexity, that difficult process, that adversity, you're going to be in a better spot because you gain knowledge, you gain perspective, and you gain experience through it. Um, so I think that comes right on the back end of reaching out to other people. And then the last thing is, you know, as we've talked about a little bit, I think it's really important to particularly during this time, you know, work is slowed down for a lot of us. I think it's actually slowing down and reflecting on some of the things that we've read and we've learned. So not always just trying to increase the number of inputs, but not being afraid to press the pause button and reflect on the conversations we've had, the books that we've read, what are our own thoughts and interpretations of those things, and how do those align with what we're passionate about, and really knowing what direction you want to grow in, because you know, we're going to grow in the direction that we're fed, just like a tree is going to grow towards the light. You know, it's great that we're trying to learn and you know, we want to take in a lot of information, but if we don't have any type of direction or understanding of where we're going, you know, it's kind of a lot of wasted effort. Whereas if we at least have some constraints in knowing what direction we want to increase our depth and breadth of knowledge in, then we can more effectively and efficiently direct our energy. And it's going to be more fruitful for us in the long run. So I think that that's something that's really important as well. Those were three awesome things that I think is going to give the listener a lot of things to kind of 
chew on and think on, but also give them things to, to go and do. And I'll, I'll touch on each really quick. Reaching out in my recent networking job search efforts. First, I like how you said, well, if they're not gonna respond, you probably wanna talk with them anyways. And also not everyone you chat with is gonna become your best friend. You know, it's okay to have a phone call that, you know, you hang up the phone and you're like, I don't know, I just wasn't really feeling it, you know, but at least you went and you did and you figured it out. And I think Jeremy Boone calls it the courage to connect where it's hard hopping on a phone with a stranger kind of in this place, looking up to them and, and being professional and, and kind of fighting through your imposter syndrome. But I think that having the courage to connect, reaching out is where a lot of people have gotten to where they are now, you know, and, and all of the phone calls I've had, no one's a cold applied for a job. You know, the closest thing someone's gotten to applying for a job is someone goes, Hey, you should submit your application. Wink, wink, you know? So I think that that's one of the most, everyone talks about networking, but no one talks about how to do it or what that actually looks like. So I, I definitely agree with that one. And with seeking out your own growth, this is a conversation I had with my mentor where there's people that go and do, and then there's people that kind of just take what's given to them. And I think it, that's an important to, question to ask yourself. Are you going and making your opportunities or is it kind of just if you're there in the right place, right time, and you got nothing else better to do, then you'll kind of go down that path. And that ties into, well, the, the last point of reflecting and, and especially in sports performance, you know, it's definitely not a, a, a nine to five Monday through Friday, as I'm sure you're very well aware, but, and also my recent phone calls, people have been talking about how they haven't realized that in the last 10 years, they've never really had a chance just to sit down and reflect. And similar to training, if we're playing the long game, if you leave a little bit in your professional development tank for this next, you know, March till, you know, let's say July, where you probably have done half as much as you could have done, you're leaving some in the tank to hit it hard whenever stuff, to whenever stuff resumes. So reflection, I think is super important. Just realizing how awesome all of this stuff is, regardless of where you are playing the long game, seeking out your own growth. Are you a doer or are you a taker? and having that courage to connect and reach out. Um, if I did those three points justice, but I think that those were three very, very awesome points to, to think about, but also just go and do. So where can the listeners get more of Dr. Sauce? Uh, so I am on Twitter. I'm at R underscore sauce. Uh, probably not as active as I should be. Uh, again, I'm more of an observer by nature. So I like to consume a lot of content because there's a lot of great discussions going on and you know phenomenal resources with regards to paper papers on there so um, I am on there so don't hesitate to reach out you can also reach me uh, at my email it's saucemanr at missouri.edu so don't hesitate to shoot me an email um, you know days are pretty busy and right now our schedule is pretty inconsistent so if I don't get back to you right away I promise I will get back to you but it may take me a few days Fantastic. I'll put those, both of those in the description and the show notes. And thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me, Matt.